Good morning. Good to see all of you here this morning. We've got some people returning from vacation, many others that are starting vacations, and it's just kind of how the summers go. And so I want to keep encouraging all of us when we're in town to be gathering. We need to be gathering as a church. Jesus set up his church in this way. Uh, When you're away, enjoy your time, relax, refresh, and that's good for you. And, uh, but when you're back, it's good for us to be gathering together, serving one another, and being reminded of our need for Jesus. So we are in week two of our journey through the Old Testament book of Esther. So I want to begin this morning with a bit of a brief recap of where we started last week. So last week we were introduced to an individual named King Ahasuerus. King Ahasuerus was the king of Persia. He loved nice things. He loved showing off his nice things, but we found that his nice things were a little too much for him. His wife, Queen Vashti, was seemingly smart and strong, but Ahasuerus only seemed to care about her looking beautiful and complying with his demands, even if his demands were abusive. In chapter 1 of Esther, Ahasuerus threw a six-month party. So it's a legit party, right? A six-month party for the important folks in Persia. And then he concluded that party with a seven-day fiesta, essentially, for all the inhabitants in the capital city of Persia, which is named Susa. And this party allowed for every man to do as he pleased. And that was one of the phrases that we, we read in chapter 1, that every man could do as he pleased. So combining this with an endless supply of the king's wine, you get a drunken debacle. And that's what this party turned into. Ahasuerus then demanded Queen Vashti to come parade her beauty in front of the drunken masses of men. And she refused. This enraged King Ahasuerus, and a law was made that Vashti would no longer be queen and could never again come in front of the king. Through these really messy circumstances, we begin to see how God is at work in unexpected ways to extend grace to people who were not looking for it or had no need or no awareness of their need. For God's grace. And one of the conclusions we drew out of this was how God still works when we are completely unaware of his work. And how that's a really good thing for us. Oftentimes we don't see it, we might not understand how God is working, but he is at work. And that's a really good thing for us. And so the call then for us is, whether times are good, times are bad, to rest in God's infinite goodness, knowing, believing that he will accomplish his good purposes in our lives. Okay, so today, this series is chapter by chapter. So these are longer chunks of scripture. So when I read chapter 2, if you want to close your eyes, just imagine what's going on. I totally encourage that. So let's read chapter 2 of Esther. After these things, these things which I've just described very briefly, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. 
Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashtai. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus, after being twelve months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again, unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants, it was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, 
who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this completely interesting story and for teaching us through a riveting narrative. I pray it would be evident, obvious, how this points to Jesus this morning. Would you also help us to see the beauty of grace as we interact with a really messy story and circumstances? Have your way in our hearts, soften our hearts, build faith in our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, this is just a really interesting story on so many levels. So here's what I want to try and accomplish this morning in our time together. So I want to take a little time and I want to try and summarize the story a bit, just kind of flesh a few things out here. And then I want to talk about three concepts that are evident here in this story and draw them out for us. I want to talk about God's providence, I want to talk about moralism, and I want to talk about grace. Okay, so chapter 2 begins with what seems like a longing remembrance in King Ahasuerus. He is thinking of Queen Vashti, and his attendants seek to resolve this emptiness in the king by suggesting something that would seem to be an option that would be very easily accepted by this king. Basically, they're saying, gather beautiful young virgins— Make them even more beautiful with cosmetics, and then bring them in front of the king to please him. The winner, then, will be the new queen for King Ahasuerus. Okay, there should be plenty in this proposal that makes our stomachs churn. Okay, this is really messed up. But this is how things transpired in Persia at this time. And this is what is going on in this story, in the Bible. It is at this time that we are introduced to two primary individuals in this story, Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai had been exiled out of Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar was king of Babylon. So I mentioned last week that Israel was exiled out of the promised land that God had given to them three different times, okay? So the second time was the nation, empire of Babylon. Okay, led by King Nebuchadnezzar. Then after that, Persia came along, and they swallowed up all of Babylon and then advanced the borders even more. Now, because his cousin, Esther, had no mother or father, Mordecai has taken on the responsibility of raising her and caring for her as a father figure. And when the king's edict came to find a new queen... Esther was included among those individuals. She was taken because she fulfilled the job requirements, which was essentially the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. Now, when we think about this, this gets... We we might hear young woman, and we might think, ah, what what exactly is that, right? Right? Is, is that 21 years old? 
because that could be a young woman. Is it much younger than that? And, and there's a lot of dialogue that goes on around this reality, but in the research that I did, a lot of people think that she was in her early teenage years. So 14-ish, right? So, so that gives a little more perspective to what's going on here as we think about this individual. She's young. I, I have a 14-year-old, and I, I understand this individual and where they're at in life. This is still a very young person. So Esther was put in the custody of Haggai, and she was given cosmetics and food in preparation for her meeting the king at some point in the future. Now for 12 months, Esther underwent beauty preparations, and during this time, she never revealed her ethnicity, for this is what Mordecai had instructed her to do. So she was a Jewish person, okay? And Mordecai is telling her, don't reveal your Jewish heritage. Let it remain hidden for now. So the way this went down for all of the women that were gathered under this edict is that when their turn came, they would go into the king at night, and then they would leave the king in the morning. So we, we can read between the lines here, right, what's going on. And most of the girls would never return to the king. If they delighted the king, they would be summoned by name to return to the king again. Now we learn that throughout Esther's process, she was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And as it pertained to King Ahasuerus, it says that he loved Esther more than all the women, to the point that he decided to bestow upon her head the crown that was given to the queen. So, in Esther, the successor to Vashti was found. If we go back to chapter 1, at the end of chapter 1, we read how the king's advisors suggested they find a queen, and the king give her royal position to one who is better than she. And there's this reality that there's always another one. We can always find someone who is better, right? We, we do this with technology. Very quickly, we get new technology, and we, we think, okay, but there's the next version comes out, and we'll find something better. And, and this happens in a lot of ways. There's always something, someone better. And we can see how fickle this idea of being better is playing out here in this story. One night, there's no meaningful relationship occurring, occurring here. The position of queen could be easily lost because there were oppressive demands and it wouldn't take much to find someone who is better in the king's eyes, someone who is more compliant, whether because they feared the king in some way, or they thought by being near to the king, they could ascertain a better life in some way. So the king might just find someone more compliant, or maybe he just wants someone who's more beautiful. Maybe he tires of this individual and says, I want someone more beautiful. When Esther then was placed in her role as queen, King Ahasuerus was intoxicated with good feelings. 
And so he threw a great feast for all his officials and servants. And he says, it was Esther's feast. Furthermore, his goodwill spread to those who resided within the provinces of Persia by relaxing taxes, as well as then giving gifts to those who were in Persia. And then lastly, we hear of a curious little story where Mordecai, who regularly came to the king's gate because he was concerned for Esther, he wanted to know how she was, what was going on with her, he comes to the gate, the king's gate, and he hears of a plot to kill the king and inform the king of this threat. Ultimately, the men are found to be guilty of this accusation, and they are executed. And this event, which will take on more importance later in the story, was written down in the Chronicles of the King. Okay, so that's a summary of the story, and this then leads us into the first of the three aspects I want to hone in on here. So, this story about Mordecai seems a bit odd that it's thrown in here. The fact that he hears this news, right, and then he shares it, and these individuals are executed, and then the story just goes on. But we need to file this away because this is important. Also, this is another example. I I talked last week about this fact that God is never mentioned in this book. There's not one mention of God in the book of Esther. It's one of the most unique things. It is the most unique thing about this book. And yet, what we find, and what we find here in this example, is that God is providentially working. He's accomplishing things that we cannot see or understand. For us today, there are many ways in which God is continually at work that we don't see, that we don't understand. This story in the book of Esther about Mordecai hearing this news seems insignificant at this point. But it's going to prove to have massive ramifications as God saves his people later. I I also gave the example last week. When Vashti, or or, uh, King Ahasuerus, decides that he wants to remove Vashti and find another queen... There's no Jewish person who would look at that and say, see, God is delivering us. God is saving us. No one would make that connection at that point, but that had to happen. Queen Vashti had to be removed from her position for all of this story to unfold. So in the midst of circumstances in life for us that are marked by goodness, or marked by difficulty. At times when we wonder if God is aware of how, of how hard things are, because maybe he seems silent to us, as well as in those times when we feel strong and sufficient and don't even have a thought of God, he is still at work, moving, accomplishing good. God is at work when we are completely unaware even now. And this is grace. This is undeserved favor from God, that he works good through the worst of circumstances. And he also works good in circumstances that are so good that we completely forget about him. Grace is coming at us in so many ways. 
I think we oftentimes take it for granted. We don't see it, but we need to. One of the ways when we, or the, the greatest way in which we can see grace is by looking at the cross of Jesus. Right? But, but think about the people in that time, in that day. As they look at Jesus, what are, their think, what are they thinking? My life is ending. They go into locked rooms and they hide from the authorities. They don't think that's good in any way. And yet, on the cross, Jesus is compl- accomplishing the greatest good in the history of the world. Right? So, whatever circumstances we find ourselves in today, or next week, or next year, as messy and as hard and horrific as it might be, God promises to work good. And maybe you don't find yourself there today. Some of you do. But I want to preach this way to put anchor points down for you. So you can look back and say, so you can believe today, I know Jesus is accomplishing good. When that day comes, and it will come, for all of us, it's coming. That you can say, Jesus is good. He will work good. Even though I don't see it, I don't understand it, I don't like this. I will still believe in the goodness of God. Okay, so here in this story, we don't see the goodness of God through what happens in this story with these men being killed, right? But there's going to be good that comes out of this. And so again, we get this example of God's Ongo- or God's providence, his ongoing work and protective care. All right, secondly, I want to talk about Esther and Mordecai. So I've sought to infer this reality in the telling of the story the past couple of weeks, last week and this week, but I want to state this really explicitly. Historically, there have been many people who have read this story and concluded that what Esther is doing is a really noble thing. And Mordecai is this admirable cousin who has chosen to take care of Esther. And he puts her in positions that benefit her and Israel. And he also puts himself in positions where he's able to learn things and do things, like the story above, right? And many people have concluded, you know what? We should be like Esther. We should try and be like Mordecai. And so I want to answer the question, are Esther and or Mordecai moral or ethical examples for us? So let me cut to the chase. The answer is no. We should not look at them as moral or ethical examples. Here's why. We need to be honest about what's happening in this story. King Ahasuerus and his officials are acting in grievously sinful ways. They are abusive. What they are doing is sickening. When we look at Queen Vashti, what we see and saw in her last week was her standing up to the king. And she's saying, this is not right. I am refusing to engage in this activity. 
And so she stands up to the king. What she does seems admirable. But when we look at Esther, we don't see her confronting the system in the same way as Vashti. And, and I'm not going to say let's be like Vashti either. Esther seems to be going along with it all. And Mordecai, what about him? He's encouraging her down this road. What kind of a wicked man would do this to a girl? Now, I want to be careful here. We don't know all the factors at play, right? We don't know the pressure they feel. We don't know the coercion. We don't know the threats. We don't know the fear. We don't know how God is stirring in their hearts. So I'm going to interact with this in a gracious way. I'm not going to stand up here and say, I'm better than them in any way. I'm just saying we're not looking at them as moral examples. But what we can do is we can acknowledge that the system that they're engaging with is massively wicked. Sexual abuse had to be rampant. Even the words used to talk about Esther's involvement in this. Maybe she didn't have much choice, right? She was gathered. She was taken. She was put in custody of those in the government system. So the question then is, how do we interact with all of this? How does this help us in our reading of Esther? And I think this can be helpful because we have a tendency to moralize everything. To view Esther and Mordecai as ethical examples. The circumstances surrounding should make it clear that they are not the impressive ones in this story. They are messy individuals in the midst of an evil system. We should not try to be like them. They, like us, needed someone outside of them to work in a supernatural way to bring about salvation. To save them from the unbridled wickedness in them and around them. They needed a savior. So, though God brings a form of salvation and deliverance through Esther and Mordecai, it's not because they're moral exemplars. It's grace. This is a demonstration of God working good through evil. And we can interact with this in our own lives when we bump into really hard things in life, things that we can say, there's no way good can come of this, that God, in his kindness, in his grace, will take the most evil of things, not justifying the evil, but showing his goodness by taking evil things and accomplishing good, showing his power over evil. And so ultimately, what we're seeing here is that Esther and Mordecai point us to Jesus. He is the true Savior. He is the true Deliverer. And so, like Esther and Mordecai, we need a Savior. We need a Deliverer as well. And this then leads us into our last item here that I want to talk about, and that is grace. 
Grace is the defining aspect of Christianity. God's salvation of us, of sinners, is an undeserved gift. No one has earned it. No one deserves it. And yet, Jesus comes at his own expense to take upon himself the punishment for our sins. He forgives us. And what he asks of of us is to believe in him. To believe who he says he is, our Savior, and to believe what he says about us as well. Grace is seen most explicitly through Jesus' death on the cross. But when we read the Bible closely, what we begin to hear are whispers of Jesus throughout the Old Testament. Pulling the story forward, saying there's going to be something better. And that better is Jesus. So there are a few whispers that we hear of in this chapter of Esther. So I want to try and and flesh out these three things briefly. So when Esther is prepared to go and see the king, she is receiving beauty treatments. So when she's receiving beauty treatments, this is not something that she's creating within herself. Okay? This is something that's being done to her. As she readies for the king... This is not an exercise in self-sufficiency. Rather, she is preparing for the king by receiving. 2.9, Esther 2.9, Haggai provided Esther with her cosmetics and her portion of food. He advanced her to the best place in the harem. Esther 2.12, the regular period of their beautifying six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments. So she is preparing by receiving. Her readiness for the king is something that is being done to her. And isn't this what Jesus does to us? Isn't this grace? He comes to us. He saves us. He forgives us of our sin. He does the refining, changing, transforming work in us. We don't make ourselves into something impressive. If there's anything good in us, we have to point immediately and directly at Jesus. This is his grace. This is his kindness. And this is how he readies us for the king. Additionally, when the women had their night with the king... They were able to take anything they wanted from the harem as they went into the king's palace. So expensive jewelry, fine clothes, maybe a gift of some sort. Esther, however, brought nothing except what was advised. When Jesus comes to us, he doesn't come because we are so impressive. He doesn't come to us because we have so much to offer. When we come to Jesus, we come with nothing. He comes to us because we are in need of help. We need to be saved. Though there's much that we've pointed out that we can look at with skepticism as Esther goes into this king. This can actually highlight how Jesus is a better king 
for us than King Ahasuerus. But as there's much that we should look at with skepticism, there's also, also whispers of grace we can see as she enters into this arrangement. She brings nothing. She's not adding to what she is. Grace is there in messy places. And we should agree what Esther is walking into here is a messy place. Grace is there in unexpected places and ways. Lastly, when Esther is crowned as queen, King Ahasuerus lifts taxes. So taxes were instituted upon people through the exercise of law. And maybe some of this harkens back to our previous sermon series of law and grace. As Esther is crowned, and knowing she is a form of a savior figure in this story, we're getting a picture of how a savior leads to the lifting of a law. You see how that's happening here in this story? This was a temporary arrangement with Esther. The taxes would be put back on people at some point. But in Jesus, we see a final Savior who lifts the law forever. He pays our spiritual tax in full. Jesus fulfills the law and in so doing removes that spiritual tax from us. We no longer need to pay the punishment for our sin. There's no cross that we need to go hang on to pay for our sin. We can't. Only Jesus can do that for us. And so in the lifting, the temporary remission of taxes, we, see, we hear a whisper of something greater that will come in an ultimate way in Jesus himself. Okay, gospel application. I've got one point, but before I do that, just a reminder. Gospel application is focused on what Jesus has done, not what we need to do. Okay? When we preach, we're preaching Jesus. We're not preaching you not preaching what you need to do. We are preaching Jesus and what he has done for us. Now, in the midst of this, it's going to reveal things about us. And that's what we're going to see here. One thing that becomes apparent throughout this chapter is the prevalence of adultery. It's everywhere in this story. So much of the story is based around this idea. The tendency in all of us is to look at everyone involved in this sin— and to judge them. And to think about maybe how we wouldn't do that. To consciously or unconsciously think about how we are better than all of these folks. But this picture, this story is given to us for reasons more than just to tell a good story. And one of the reasons for us to hear this story is the fact that we are spiritual adulterers. Every single one of us. I can look out at you and know that you are just as much of an adulterer spiritually as I am. We are all guilty of this. None of us can say, well, I have never committed sexual adultery 
physically with another person, so I'm fine. No, we are all on a level playing field here. You and I are alike. Now, we don't have a king like Ahasuerus. That's not what Jesus is like. And so if we trust in Jesus, we have a different king, and yet we're still like all the women in that harem. We have embraced the sinful reality that we are surrounded by, that pervades our culture. We have cuddled up with evil. We have gotten in bed with sin, spiritually speaking. We are no better than any woman in that harem or King Ahasuerus. We have exposed ourselves as wicked. So this is what the gospel says about us. We are guilty, deserving of punishment, of judgment. This is what we must believe about ourselves. And when we believe that about ourselves, then it also pushes us to believe we need a Savior. And this is why grace is so profound. Jesus knows that when he's going to come to earth, he is walking, he he knows what he's walking into as he comes here. He knows all of his inhabitants, all of those in his kingdom and outside of his kingdom, have already rebelled against him. Still, he comes. Still, he extends forgiveness. When we look around, we see the uniqueness of Jesus. This idea that there is no one else like him. Vashti was a queen, but she was quickly discarded. Esther was easily inserted. Despite attempts to discard and replace him, Jesus cannot be replaced. Despite thousands of years, many kings have come and gone. But Jesus still reigns and rules. There is not another one. He will not be replaced. He is it. The only one. And so in one sense, as we think about this, this should sober us. This is a heavy reality that we are rebels, marked by wickedness, condemned, guilty, And yet, this reality also leads us to celebration as well. Jesus offers us rebels grace. He offers us forgiveness. And so the call then is for us to receive it today. It's being extended, offered to us now. So wherever you're at, whatever questions you have, now or tomorrow or next week or next year, whatever doubts that linger inside of you, whatever fears that haunt you, whatever anger that sees inside of you, Jesus offers grace. He knows your mess. And it doesn't make him run away. He runs to you, and he offers forgiveness. So receive it by believing the gospel.